Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. We have two very special interviews for you today, so this is a real treat. We are going to be speaking about Biosphere 2. Our first interview is with Rebecca Ryder. Rebecca first arrived at Biosphere 2 as a wide-eyed student researcher in 1999. They wrote Dreaming the Biosphere, the Theater of All Possibilities, after several years of investigation, exclusive archival research, and dialogue with the Biosphere 2 project's creators, including more than 50 interviews. They currently live in New Zealand and work with organic farmers. Here's what they have to say about Biosphere 2. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So could you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about your connection to Biosphere 2? How did you get involved? Yeah, sure. So it started when I was an undergraduate in university. Uh, I was at Harvard and I didn't like it much there and was really excited (laughs) to find a way to spend a semester somewhere warmer and more friendly. So I got an email from the environmental club that talked about this semester program at Biosphere 2. At that time, it was 1999, so it was five years after humans had stopped living inside. So I went out there for a semester in this environmental studies program, and uh, no one, we had all the, you know, we studied earth science and conservation biology and environmental politics, and no one was talking about what happened at the biosphere. In fact, it was super taboo. 
and I needed to do a student research project and my field was history of science. So of course I thought, wow, the history of this place, that would make uh, an interesting research project. And um, immediately the response from the management, it was run by Columbia University at the time, was no, 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 that's not appropriate. You cannot interview anyone who lived inside the biosphere. <laughs> so of course I thought, oh, what a great research project to do as soon as I leave this place. So uh, it became, I got quite sucked into the story and just fascinated by it once I met the creators who were, um, way more wonderful and engaging people than I had expected based on their media portrayal. And so, yeah, just uh, started out as an undergraduate thesis. And then 10 years later, it was uh, my first book. And, and can you talk to us about these, uh, about the group? Um, what was their origin? How did they form? What was their mission? Who were some of the initial key players? Sure. So, uh, the first thing is they would have hated the start of that question because you used the word group. And, oh, I wrote no. to them and said, <laughs> I wrote to them and said, can I, I'd like to come learn about your group. And they said, we're not a group. <laughs> we're an organization. Oh, because I'm they so were labeled. <laughs> no, no, you don't need to apologize to me. <laughs> My feelings have not been injured at all. So um, they, because so it started, it started in uh, the late sixties, the first few of the creators met. And they started what they did not want to call a commune in New Mexico. And they were theater performers and you know, they were um, all sorts of people, mostly young, who were disillusioned with society. You know, it was the time when communes were starting up all across the North American landscape. And uh, so, yeah, uh, they got together and started basically rehabilitating this somewhat degraded ranch land in New Mexico. And from there, they ended up at Biosphere 2 about 15 years later uh, through a series of growing ecological projects. So how, how did they, the organization attract the attention of billionaire Ed Bass? Uh, how, how, how did um, his involvement eventually change things for them as well? Yeah, so Ed Bass... A fascinating character, one of the few people who I did not get to interview, although I um, stalked him somewhat <laughs> relentlessly, even in person. He's a very soft-spoken guy and just happens to be from this very wealthy Texas oil family that got even more wealthy when they invested in Disney. And wow. so in the 80s. So he came, um, but his money was originally from oil. So, but he was kind of the black sheep and, you know, was into eco stuff and uh, he was living in New Mexico himself and visited the ranch, I think for, it was called Synergia Ranch was the place where it all started. Um, Synergia being a derivative of the word synergy, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. So Ed comes along to this theater production, is intrigued, meets people. Uh, eventually, he started getting involved with their local construction projects. Uh, the folks there were builders. Uh, they had an adobe construction company, so they were reviving adobe building methods in Santa Fe. He got involved. Then he got involved in the theater. He moved to the ranch himself. And uh, when you have a billionaire in your not commune. It's quite convenient. I'm not sure if he was a billionaire or just a multi multi-millionaire at that point, <laughs> but they started. Uh, yeah. So then um, he started investing in their projects. So um, 
you know, they, before he came along, they'd already started building a ship to uh, sail the oceans. Uh, after he came along with his investment, they, uh, they bought a farmhouse in France where they started hosting ecological conferences. Uh, they built a hotel in Nepal in Kathmandu that was going to be this um, place for international travelers to gather. Uh, they bought a few ranches in Australia where they started restoring grasslands. Uh, what else? They had an art gallery in London. And they, this was all under the umbrella of this, what they called the Institute of Ecotechnics. So at each place, there was some sort of ecological or cultural component. Uh, there was a theater troupe because that was part of the group dynamics and how these people were developing themselves to be the most amazing humans they could in their view. And um, yeah, and that eventually all led to the biosphere. So they were doing something in kind of every ecosystem. So, you know, it was like, okay, ocean, check, desert, check, grasslands, yes. Okay, then they got a rainforest project in Puerto Rico. So obviously we now understand all the ecosystems in the world. So time to put them all together. And that's what led to Biosphere 2. And I mean, they, they, of course, also understood the most important of all ecosystems, which is the ecosystem of the theater. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about their leader, John Allen? Sure. John Allen is a unique, <laughs> a unique character. So um, he was a little bit older than others in the group. He was probably like in his 40s when others were in their 20s and 30s. And extremely intelligent man. Uh, his background was in mining engineering, and he went to Harvard Business School. So not maybe your typical not commune leader profile. <laughs> and very forceful personality. Definitely one of the more uh, intense humans I've ever met. And he has a way of guiding the conversation, no matter who's in the room. It's like what his, what's on his agenda would be what's happening. And he's also got really interested in theater. And, um, and this became sort of part of his human technology for influencing other humans. And so he was really the, the leader at Synergia Ranch and guiding a lot of the this whole life program that, that developed and this real ambition that they weren't just going to be this little group of idealists on the desert. They were going to go out and... I don't do it all. The world. Do it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why did uh, John Allen and Ed Bass decide to focus their efforts on Biosphere 2? What led them there? Well, um, so it's, by this time, it's the early 1980s. So this is only uh, a guess because, you know, people tell me what their motivations were. Um, and I think there are actually a lot of motivations going on, but definitely the, so the space race was a big deal at this time. And also uh, the revolutions of the sixties and seventies hadn't exactly materially uh, changed human society. Like think about the landscape of the early 1980s, like the dreams of, the, of a lot of these people from who were doing these eco projects in the sixties and seventies hadn't really come to fruition on a large mm -hmm. scale. So why don't we just go live somewhere else <laughs> like Mars? I think that was part of the, part of the motivation was initially to get into the space race. And, um, 
And at first, you know, they didn't have a direct plan for how they were going to actually get all those materials to another planet and build the biosphere. But that was very much part of the fantasy is let's see if we can build a miniature eco space colony on Earth. Because if we're going to live in space, you know, we don't want to be in this tin can designed by NASA. We want to have, you know, nourishing food and our ecosystems with us. So could we make a whole little world under glass? So yeah, that was the official, that was the official motivation. I want to, yeah. And what was the building process like for uh, the biosphere? Was there anyone in charge? Um, what, what did they choose to put inside it and, and why? So uh, it was a massive project, obviously. We're talking like $150 million build. Wow. That's not even including the operating costs afterwards. Uh, all that investment came from Edbass. So they just started hiring all the best con- scientific consultants who they could pull in who wanted to work on it. And a lot of these scientists were like, okay, yeah, this is a little bit different, but you want to give me a huge budget to pull together my ideal ecosystem? Sure. <laughs> so they pulled together some amazing scientific consultants and each one you know, had their own areas. So they had one guy in charge of the oceans and the marsh and um, one in charge of the rainforest, one in charge of the desert. But then all the scientists, of course, also had to talk to each other because their creatures are going to leave their parts. So, you know, they were debating who could in, who could include a bat. But if you include the bat, I don't remember if the bat made it in. How many insects would need to be included for the bat to eat? So there were these complex <laughs> wow. food web meetings. And um, yeah, and they were basically it wasn't just like a survival bubble. It was really designed to be a wilderness, like the, the greatest hits of Earth under glass. So uh, they were, you know, bringing in all these different rainforest trees. Uh, they brought corals from the Gulf of Mexico, I think it was, that turned out to be quite a, uh, you know, because let's have a coral reef in our ocean. That's actually, <laughs> we don't want just a glorified swimming pool. We want a coral reef. Of course, that became hugely challenging to sustain once it's locked in with everything else and other things coming into the ocean because corals are very sensitive. <laughs> so it was really this wild design project to get together whatever they thought was the most interesting of, of Earth's biodiversity. Plus, of course, a really big farm because they were mm. going to have to grow all their own food. So what was the selection process for the eight people that were, would eventually be locked inside the biosphere? Well, I, that's another thing that I never got the exact inside view on. I remember Ooh. one of the biospherians said to me, there were about 14 candidates for the eight, and they were mostly people who'd been part of these ecological projects for a long time. A few came on later because they had the right scientific credentials. Uh, and they each had to have you know, an area of specialty inside the biosphere. So part of it was getting a team, you know, someone could do oceans, someone could be in charge of the farm. One of them was a doctor, but the doctor, he, he was a late joiner. And he said to me, I said to him, how were people, how were people chosen, you know, who got to live in the biosphere? Cause they were all kind of in competition with their friends to get yeah. in. And he said, by what they could contribute and how much they could be controlled. <gasps> Juicy. <laughs> because, you know, so this is a massive project at this point and John Allen and um, his, 
CEO, co-leader Margaret Augustine, uh, were very much in charge of every aspect of the project. And so the biospherians needed to be people that they wanted to deal with. So what, you know, the project is about to, you know, it's already underway. They're about to lock up the, lock up like they're in jail, uh, the eight (laughs) biospherians. And what kind of press is it getting? How anticipated was, was this? This is one of the parts that I found most fascinating when I did my research, because, wow, this is, it's a real case study in media studies, this one, because the media sort of collectively created one narrative and then created a totally different narrative. And it all went really in one kind of fluid, sudden motion, which is that at first, these guys were media darlings. Like, like now, I think when I was writing the book, the thing I had to deal with most was that people would say, oh, right, yeah, that thing failed, right? And I would, I would get kind of defensive. And here I am on a podcast about things that fail. So, because it, uh, I wondered, kind of what failed? They did end up staying in there for two years. And, and originally, the media narrative had actually been so positive. It was like, wow, these people are pioneers. They're, they're, it's the Garden of Eden. There were all these biblical metaphors about it. it's, it's Eden, no, it's Noah's Ark. They're going to save us all because we're destroying the earth. So they're going to show us how to get to space in an eco colony. Like the press was super adoring and super mainstream press as well. And lots of it. Then sort of just about a year before the people were going into the biosphere, all of that changed because when you have a past like these people have, it's going to get out somehow. And John Allen's very controversial figure had upset a lot of people. Um, It's known for being what some people probably would have termed emotionally abusive. And there were people who had been hurt and the story started getting out. And there was a massive expose. Uh, A journalist did a piece in the Village Voice that basically called him like Jim Jones of the ecology movement and called the whole thing a cult. And these people aren't scientists, they're theater performers. Well, it's true. Some of them were not scientists and they also were theater performers who had hired scientists to help them. So when this all got out, all of a sudden the whole narrative changed right when they're ready to go into the biosphere. And from then the press was really uh, in attack mode, focusing on the past and looking for any potential flaws and uh, to pick apart the project. So what, once inside, what, how are they spending their time? Um, how, how are these biospherians, uh, you know, doing? They were busy people. So... I think some of them, <laughs> you know, try, try growing all your own food. And it's not like, oh, if uh, the carrots didn't work out this year, then we can just go to the grocery store. <laughs> nope, and, I won't try. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't try. That wasn't an instruction. That was a, more like a thought exercise. Yeah, they, you know, they really had to grow all their own food. And also most of them were not experienced farmers. And also... Biosphere 2 is an extremely different um, ecology than any of them had been in before. I mean, I'm a gardener and I just started trying to grow things in a greenhouse. It's completely different, the pests and diseases and things you get in a greenhouse. And a lot of that hadn't been factored in. So they spent a lot of time working on their farm. They got pretty hungry pretty soon because they weren't growing enough to feed themselves. And they're, well, losing quite a lot of weight. And yeah, it was a lot of really hard labor. You know, I think they went in 
really with huge aspirations of we're going to make huge scientific discoveries about how this ecosystem is going to organize itself because we've created this wilderness and now we're going to get to watch it and see what happens. And once, once they were in there, it was like, okay, we got to stay alive. <laughs> so there's, there's one of them named Jane Pointer. Um, she has an injury and has to leave the dome for medical and uh, I'm sorry, the biosphere for medical attention. Her return then sparks controversy. Why is that? That was, uh, so that was kind of one of the salient points in this weird media narrative, which is that, yeah, she, uh, she was working with the agricultural machines, basically sliced off the tip of her finger. They had a doctor in there. He did minor surgery, but it, but thought that she needed more medical attention. So they sent her out. And when she came back, she had, a duffel bag. <laughs> and the media freaked out because what was in the duffel bag? <laughs> you know, they'd only been in the biosphere a few weeks and someone had gone out, come in, and then there were all these um, journalists absolutely freaking out about it. And it's like, how would that actually invalidate these people doing an experiment? Even if she had McDonald's takeout <laughs> in the duffel bag, which she, I'm pretty sure she did not based on the makeup of this uh, group of people. But even if she had, like, why would, you know, why would that change anything? You know, it was probably, I don't know, occasionally I think they might have gotten some supplies in that were like technological parts for machines or something like that. So um, the media absolutely freaked out. There was, there was a, I think there was a headline or a quote in one of the articles that was something like, for want of a fingertip, might an experiment be lost? <laughs> and so I think this is really just an example of how the media just when they, when when journalists decide on mass that they want to destroy someone, they do. And that's what started happening was that all of a sudden it was like anything. And there have been a few other whispers beforehand as well. But all of a sudden it was like it wasn't an ecological project. It was more like these people said they were going to do this and now they're cheating and we're going to get them. Wow. Did, did they didn't know it was fake from the beginning? <laughs> That's pretty real. If you see how skinny those biospherians got, oh, I mean, well, yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, so it's it's toward the end of the the first mission that Ed Bass brings along new financial advisors. Who were they, and why were they brought on? Right. So uh, Ed Bass had spent by the time the people were getting through their two year mission inside, he'd spent like two hundred million dollars, and there was no plan. Uh, on when that was going to stop. <laughs> and um, you know, with a lot of uh, NASA type stuff, there's often talk of spin-off technologies and it's okay if we pour all this money into the space race because we're going to get other things. Surely we'll invent something cool along the way that we can use. And so that rhetoric was around at Biosphere 2, but they weren't coming up with many more spin-off technologies than NASA. They were, uh, yeah, there was no profit-making uh, end in sight or research funding. It was just seemed like it was just going to keep going with Ed funding it forever. So he brought in some uh, bankers to uh, try and bring some order to the situation. And one of the people he brought in was Steve Bannon. And that's the Steve Bannon. So when Steve Bannon came uh, into the news as part of the Trump administration, I was like, wait a minute, is that? <laughs> Is that the same Steve Bannon that took over Biosphere 2? 
<laughs> and it is. He was an investment banker. And now I understand a little bit more about why his methods were somewhat unorthodox now that we know a little bit more about him. So he comes in with um, Ed's uh, Texas uh, personal banker, um, a guy named Martin Bowen, and they started trying to get the biosphere managers to make some sort of financial plan. And that didn't go very well because John Allen didn't like people looking over his shoulder, especially someone having uh, an investment banker like Steve Bannon looking over his shoulder. So then what, what um, I mean, eventually he and the uh, a few of the other managing biospherians get fired. What was the reasoning for for the firings? Yeah, well, it's been tricky because you know, John Allen, he's a very shrewd businessman. So he uh, had set up this joint venture. So Ed Bass couldn't actually fire him because the way that they'd set it up, um, Ed and his investment corporation owned half of Biosphere 2 and the other half was owned by the other directors, including John Allen, because they'd put in their intellectual property or what they called sweat equity. So Ed couldn't just fire them all. So what he did was he finally got a restraining order against them in uh, his, one of his hometown Texas courts. And so Steve Bannon comes in with uh, U.S. Marshals with guns. And this is, this is uh, the second biosphere mission. So the first set of biospherians had already spent two years in the biosphere, came out looking quite skinny, but they survived amazingly and went on to do other things, some of them. And then the second crew of biospherians had, had gone in six months later. And then all of a sudden on April Fool's Day, 1994, uh, the Biospherians are sitting uh, and for to have a video conference with Mission Control outside, and Steve Bannon and Martin Bowen show up on the screen and say, "We've taken over the Biosphere. Like we have a restraining order against the managers. The other managers happened to be on a trip overseas at that time, conveniently, so that's why they did it then. And they secured the site, and it was this total um, military-style takeover of this eco-science project. So yeah, when I found out more about who Steve Bannon was. Afterwards, I went, okay, that makes a little more sense now why it went a little bit over the top there. But um, he, I think, managed to convince a judge that, you know, that the managers were dangerous and violent people. And so this was all justified. And is that how the second mission comes to a close? Yeah, well, so the second mission actually, yeah, it only lasted, I think, about six months. And... They'd kind of run out of rationale for it once the old managers were gone. Like this, um, scientists started coming in and out and staying with the Biospherians. And then the Biospherians, I think, were just getting a bit grumpy. Like, wait a minute, you're coming in and eating the food that we're growing and we never get to leave? Like, what's going on? So because that sort of survival mission thing wasn't happening anymore. And then actually it was a, it was a technical problem um, that led them to leave, which is that there were lots of ecological unforeseens that happened in there with the atmosphere and the creatures and everything. And one of them is that um, soil microbes, one of the things they breathe out is nitrous oxide. We all know about that because it's um, global warming contributions, but it's broken up in our atmosphere. It's broken up by UV light, but in there it wasn't. So it was like they were basically the atmosphere over time was just getting more and more nitrous oxide in it. So that's like la- the laughing gas that people get at the dentist. Like it's not something that's good for the human nervous system to breathe all the time. And it was actually getting over 
whatever the U.S. government regulations are to keep people safe in medical settings. So, yeah. So when those data started showing up, they they went, okay, yeah, it's it's time to get out of here. You got to get out. Okay. um, So where are these uh, the creators of the biosphere to now? They, um, so I haven't actually been in touch with them for some years. Uh, my book came out about, oof, about 12 years ago. I've been in touch with some of them. So there was a bit of a split. So about half of them stuck together, about half of the folks who lived in Biosphere 2 stuck together with John Allen. And um, a lot of them eventually moved back to Synergia Ranch in the desert. So they ended up, the way that Ed Bass ended up getting the biosphere back was they signed a confidential agreement. And they, so John Allen and those folks ended up with a bunch of their old properties. Ed Bass ended up with the biosphere. Um, the other folks, Ed Bass probably gave them quite a lot of funding. It's, uh, you know, it was all a secret agreement to, to buy them out, basically. So they went on to, you know, some of them went on studying coral reefs. Some of them went on when I visited them when I was writing the book. They were building uh, a little, tiny little space space capsule still trying to figure out how they're going to live on Mars. As far as I know, none of them have gone there yet. Although actually two of the biospherians who ended up alienated from the management started their own eco space company and started sending like total, totally small ecosystems like enclosed in glass. I think they might have sent them onto some NASA space missions. I haven't followed all the details. So some got very interested in space still. Some were into eco stuff. Um, one of the biospherians, uh, Linda Lay, I saw her a few years ago and she still lives. Uh, she moved back to that area and is working on local eco projects in the desert. So yeah, they all went in, in different directions, but none of them went on to do anything quite as huge. Interesting. As so at the end of the day, we have, we have to ask all of our guest experts this. If you had to pick one person or thing, it could be a concept that was to blame for the failure of Biosphere 2. I mean, we, we can contest whether it was a failure or not, depending on whose perspective we're, we're looking at it from. Who or what would that be? Yeah, I find that a fascinating question. So, you know, if you talk to some of the people involved, they would probably blame John Allen. You know, one of them said to me something like, some of us felt like he was the Antichrist coming back to destroy what he created because, you know, just as we got it going, he became so controlling and it became impossible to deal with any problems transparently. So, you know, on a personal level, some people probably would have blamed him. Uh as a historian, I'm kind of less interested in those kind of micro stories. And for me, the you know, if there was a failure, which it's hard to know which was which which thing that happened would be defined as the failure. But I suppose the fact that you know that they thought biosphere was going to be a closed system for a hundred years and it's not, and that they stopped living inside. Uh, yeah, I you know. For me, it's the idea that we can control nature that's really to blame, Um, that these people wanted to bring together the best of Earth's ecology, but then they wanted it to somehow magically turn into this uh, world where humans would be comfortable and cared for. And the biosphere really did show the power of life. Like It was evolving 
you know, new um, microbial communities were emerging. The atmosphere was doing interesting things. It was evolving. It was life was succeeding, but it was just evolving in a direction that was going to eliminate humans. So, yeah. So this uh, this idea that we can have it all, you know, that that we can trust in the power of nature, but that it's going to do exactly what we want, I think, set them up for a pretty impossible long term situation. Well, Rebecca, thank you so, so much for, again, joining us today and helping us understand more about Biosphere 2. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to discuss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Alarmist. 
Next up is guest expert John Adams. John is the deputy director of the current Biosphere 2, and he has a lot of insight as to what is happening at the facility right now. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I, I, it's great. To, I really enjoy talking about Biosphere 2 and sharing it uh, with new audiences. So I look forward to this. Well, it's been fascinating learning about Biosphere 2. As the deputy director of the current Biosphere 2, what does your day-to-day consist of? Well, my, my day-to-day consists of a little bit of everything. I mean, Biosphere 2 is more than just a facility. I mean, we have visitors that come in. Uh, we have researchers that are not only doing research inside, but outside. Um, you know, we do have a staff here that helps to keep everything going. Without them, this place would not exist um, in its current state. So, you know, I help to to give direction and support for the people who really make everything happen here at Biosphere 2. So after the end of the second mission of Biosphere 2, what was the general state of the uh, complex? Yeah, I mean, so the, the facility is, we'll start with sort of the physical infrastructure. So the facility yes, was please. remarkably uh, built uh, and the experiments that were run inside, and I can't stress that enough, these were experiments. No one had ever attempted to build anything of this size, of this complexity, seal it up and operate it for an extended period of time, hermetically sealed. So remember, not even NASA, uh, most recently, the Chinese Lunar Palace, uh, you know, they completed like, I think just over a a little over a year mission. Uh, You know, folks on the International Space Station, maybe, you know, six months or a year is sort of the longest duration. So you had a facility that was designed to be hermetically sealed and it did so its first two years was completely sealed. Yeah, they had some challenges, but you would expect that anytime you build something new, no one else has done it. You've got to imagine that you're going to face challenges, things that are going to come up that you didn't anticipate. But when that second group left Bias for Two, it was really well um, designed and engineered. And there were some questions about how it should be used. So the physical infrastructure was in great shape, but I think the overall objective of what the facility should be used for is where the real questions began to to rise. So can you talk to us a little bit about the actual physical structure? Like what is a, we we know we were, we were very confused as to what a fog desert was, how they were able to fit a coral reef in there. How big was the rainforest? (laughs) Yeah, no, those are great questions. So let me see if I can try to paint a picture uh, through words. Uh, so Biosphere 2 is located just north of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we are on the edge of the Sonoran Desert. So we're sort of on that northern edge of the Sonoran Desert, sort of a, a classic uh, marquee organism of the Sonoran Desert of these, these, uh, these saguaro cacti uh, that people see, uh, for those of you who are not in this region. Uh, and we are on the northern end of a large, uh, substantial mountain range here in southern Arizona called the Santa Catalina Mountains. So we're slightly higher in elevation than Tucson and in Phoenix by a couple thousand feet. Uh, we do get a little bit of snow here. And so when you come up over uh, one of the rises and you look down, uh, Biosphere 2 sits in somewhat of a, a small depression and it's a large glass and steel structure. Uh, the footprint is a little over three acres in size. Uh, it has two sort of large pyramid-like looking structures, almost like Mayan-like structures that book in bias for two. The larger of the two is where the tropical rainforest is. That's about a half acre in size. On the other end, uh, 
uh, is the coastal fog desert. And I'll talk a little bit more about what a coastal fog desert. And then there's sort of this long midsection that you can see and located in that midsection, um, I like to refer to as the Savannah Ocean Corridor. So we have the Savannah, the ocean, the marsh, uh, the lower Savannah and the upper and lower thorn scrub in this region. And so that's the upper portion, if you wanna think of bias for two as a T. And then the leg, of that T is uh, another portion of bias for two, still part of that three acre complex, but that's where the former agricultural space was. Mm -hmm. And that too is a half acre in size. And then also they had what they're called, we call their living quarters. So they had their apartments, their kitchen, their dining room, uh, their restrooms. They had a machine shop, an analytical laboratory. They had a place where they did keep some farm animals inside. So bias for two was intended and designed to be a complete facility where they could spend extended period of times and have all of those amenities that you might think of possible late 80s, early 90s when it was constructed and commissioned. So what can people expect to do or or see when they visit these days? Yeah. So Biosphere 2, you know, one of the great things that we try to do here at Biosphere 2, and, and we're owned and operated by the University of Arizona now. So this that's a big shift, a big change. And that happened back in 2007. But when you come and visit Biosphere 2, one of the things we pride ourselves is that you can actually go into many of the spaces where the research is happening. So you come on on property and obviously everybody's operation has changed in the face of COVID. So we too had to adapt um, and, and given the new guidelines, not only by uh, you know the nation but all and the CDC, but also by the university itself, uh, we had to shift to rather than a, a guide uh, delivered content tour experience into an app tour. So when you come on on property, you can download the Bias for Two app and you begin to have an opportunity to explore the facility through the app, the videos, the interviews that we've provided. And you actually get to go through the upper and lower habitat. So you can see the kitchen, you can see what their apartment looked like. We know people, we, we're all gravitated towards that fascination of what it was like inside, the drama that happened when people were living together for extended period of times, dependent on one another to make sure everybody was pulling their own weight, uh, as they say. Um, And so you get to see all of that. Uh, We also give you an opportunity to learn a little bit about what these and how these systems were designed, but then we quickly move into how they're being used today. Uh, You know, we all see the impacts of climate change. Uh, we know that temperatures are changing. We know that moisture regimes are changing. We hear about it worldwide. If you if you love to drink wine, you hear about the issues in France where you know they have, used to have a big wine festival. Sort of all of that harvesting occurred almost simultaneously, and they could sort of have it happen at one certain time of the year. Well, now that's all shifting, and grapes that were grown at lower elevation are now having to be grown at higher elevation. So. What we're focusing on is we're using bias for two in part to understand how complex systems are responding to these climate shifts that we're seeing and those that we predict in the future. So you get to go through the habitat and learn a bit, but then you get to enter into the desert and work your way all the way up through bias for two. So you work your way through the coastal fog desert. A fog desert is a region that if you were to travel into Mexico, leaving Tucson, Arizona, um, and work your way south along the Baja Peninsula, a lot of the vegetation that you encounter uh, along that travel route is included in our coastal fog. Higher humidity, not as extreme temperatures, and that was by design. Then you're going to work your way up into the thorn scrub. This is a transitional zone between the savanna and the fog desert. Again, this is another region that you'd find down in New Mexico, a couple days drive uh, to the south of Tucson. 
you work your way into and along the mangrove area. These are mangrove trees. So anybody that's listening that lives on the Gulf Coast, they actually collected these from a, a site that was slated for development. So they got all the trees, the water, as much as they could garner from there and put them inside bias or two. You sort of increase in elevation and now you're standing up in the upper savanna. Uh, this is uh, this, these have the acacia dominated canopy, a little bit of grass understory, but not much anymore because the trees shade that out. And then you look over a cliff and you see a million gallon ocean. So we actually have an ocean inside bias or two. It was an important component that they wanted to incorporate for, but for all of our listeners uh, who are tuning in, who have an aquarium, whether it's freshwater or saltwater, I think we all know how challenging those mm -hmm. things are to run. <laughs> Our ocean is no exception. Uh, we've done some remarkable research inside, but it is a challenging system to maintain. And then that gives way, you know, you walk into and go through, and we've actually partitioned off uh, this next area. You go through a door and you open it up and all that you see is green. And that's our tropical rainforest. So you've got a really well-developed canopy. It's, it's up against the glass. It's covering, it's blocking all of the light around the perimeters, predominantly like banana trees. You look at this understory and it's really well-developed with lots of greeny. And it, it just, it feels like you're in the Amazon basin, which is what it was originally designed uh, to be modeled after. Biosphere 2 just really went up on my uh, travel list, uh, just hearing you talk about it. <laughs> We have to visit. Um, so, you know, think, thinking larger, I, I know that it's still being used as a research facility at the moment. Uh, what kind of research is being done? Right. So all of these systems I just described are visitors. So if you come and visit, you can actually go through them and you can learn about them through the app, which is interactive. But more importantly, this was facility that was privately financed and late 80s, early 90s when it was constructed, the cost and no one no one's given us sort of the exact numbers 250 million dollars so if we inflate that to today dollar we're looking at like a billion dollars i like to think of bias for two as the accelerator for the earth sciences so as much as we hear about as much as we romanticize you know, hear elon musk nasa all of these other entities talking about going to the moon going to mars i mean that's great and i think it's incredible for science but the likelihood that you and I, my daughter, my grandchildren, if we have any in the future, that they're going to be able to travel to another planet to escape the woes here, I think is highly unlikely. So that's why bias for two as a whole from a research perspective is important. And the research we're doing is, you know, we have a complex tropical system. We have this rainforest system that has well over 100 different species that have been living together for over 30 years. Now, you as a researcher can come in and say, okay, a lot of scientists are saying it's going to get warmer and drier in the tropics. Well, you can't just stick a dome over the tropics, crank up the temperature and look what's happened to give you a prediction of what you're going to see in the future. We can do that in the rainforest. In fact, we just just prior to COVID. So it's been you know a little over a year. Um, we had a group of researchers from in part led by a team from the University of Freiburg in Germany partnered up with our folks here at the University of Arizona and other researchers around the country and around the world. And they subjected our rainforest to a 70 day drought. And they wanted to know how does the cycling of carbon, energy and water change as it goes from a relatively stable state to this really stressed drought state? You know, these are things that you just can't do in nature. And scientists are really trying to sort of put all these pieces together in something that's understandable and gives us predictions for what we're gonna see in the future. So that's one experiment. 
Our ocean system, we're actually in the process of re-engineering it so we can control the temperature, we can give it light. But one of the early experiments that was really significant out of our ocean is we were one of the first places to show a direct connection between increasing atmospheric CO2 and decreasing coral calcification. So today, I think most of us here pretty regularly, we've lost 50% of our coral reefs, okay? Most of that, yes, some of that's attributed to this uh, ocean acidification, which is what I just referenced, but also a lot of it is attributed to these very dramatic increases in coastal water temperature. And so in our ocean, we're working with researchers who want to say, okay, what if we can breed some corals that survive higher temperatures? Because uh, unfortunately, um, she recently passed as a result of cancer, but a lady by the name of Ruth Gates, a really prominent researcher at the University of Hawaii, um, what she said is that if we do nothing, by 2050, reefs as we know them are going to cease to exist. Wow. But she was a really big proponent of bias for two, because what she said is those things that you're afraid to do in nature first, you can do inside bias for two. So bias for two is an experimental tool. So if you've got this hybrid coral and you want to test, well, how resilient is it? And you know, you've done the test in the lab, but now you need something slightly bigger, more complex that you can control. You can put it into the bias for two ocean. And that's what we're getting ready to do. So we did those early experiments with CO2. Now we're going to do experiments with temperature and we are re-engineering the ocean. We're improving the circulation, the temperature control and the light so that we can do those types of experiments. Now, one area that's really changed a lot is this place where they grew their, their where they had their farm. Mm -hmm. So the people who were living inside were dependent on what they could grow. And they had a half acre that we called the intensive agricultural biome set aside for those that purpose. Now, when the university came in, the soil was really challenging to work with in this area. We, we did some, I think, some very interesting research, but our peers always pointed back the soils unnatural. Um, it was fabricated. So there was a decision. Let's get rid of that soil and build a really new and innovative experiment. And, you know, we all hear about water. Water is this universal solvent, super important for all of our existence. But yet hydrologists will tell you once it goes below the surface, they don't really know what's going on. And so we built an experiment we call LEO, the Landscape Evolution Observatory. This is three large slopes inside of this former agricultural space. And the whole premise here is it rains in the mountains, how much water ends up downstream for you and I to use and what impacts the quality of that. When you have progressive changes in that landscape. And so our research team is able to use that to understand some of these fundamental processes in ways that they just can't do outside or in a traditional laboratory. Fascinating. John, thank you so much for, you know, helping us understand what's going on right now in Biosphere uh, 2. Well, my, my pleasure. And hopefully, uh, you know, everybody will have a chance not only to listen to this, but also have a chance to visit Bias for Two. We're open every day of the week. You can follow us on our social media platforms, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. We've got a great website. So, you know, please uh, go there. You can find out everything that's happening at Bias for Two and keep up to date. I'm already planning my trip. Outstanding. Well, thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hey, everyone. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. What a double doozy. Is that a thing? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> double up on all those doozies. Um, I could have spent all day and night speaking to both Rebecca and John. So fascinating. Same. Very fascinating. Well, it's uh, and it's not uh, typical for us to go through a his, a 
piece of history, think about it, look at it, examine it, and then hear about what's going on today. <laughs> exactly. Uh, like, <laughs> I know. And one thing I also will say was is that after those two guest interviews, I feel like I just want to go on the record and say that I'm not sure in my mind this was a quote failure or tragedy. No. I, so I, in, a, yes. in a sense, we're not, I mean, the alarmist jumped the shark a little bit this for this episode, I would say a little bit because we look at history's greatest tragedies. And maybe it was a, a one of history's biggest oopsie daisies. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a real, it was a failure for humans. I mean, when Rebecca was talking and they were saying what really resonated with me was they were explaining how the experiment was actually progressing and evolving. It was just evolving in a way that humans were going to be eventually eliminated. Right. And now to hear John say the facility is like really thriving. We've reused it. It's still existing and being very helpful. It's like big failure for humans, but for the actual biosphere, like it's kind of thriving. <laughs> is that what you it's, it's, it's true. I mean, uh, I guess if I was going to come back, if I was going to be reincarnated and come back, I, I'd hope I was some like an algae or something that's thriving <laughs> yeah, inside Biosphere in too. <laughs> I love that. Um, I, you know, something that John said towards uh, the middle of our interview, which really had me um, spiraling for a second, but you know, I, 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 I I'm back. You know, I. <laughs> I didn't go down the full spiral, but he said, you know, he was just talking about, you know, if we get to the point, you know, where our grandkids can have children, he just like very casually (laughs) said, you know, if we get to that point where our grandkids can have children, I was like, whoa, like hold on to the table, people, hold on to your seat. We used to casually uh, say that climate change didn't exist. And now we casually say if our grandkids are alive. Well, but, that's what that's what they that's what a big thing was saying, and and Rebecca was sort of intimating this as well. And what you said, Clayton, was that you, look, Earth is going to be fine. Like Earth is going to change, but Earth will be, be still be here. It's just will the humans be able to live right. on it? Right. Right. And you know, I I'm hope it did leave me with a little bit of hope. You know, the fact that we do have this facility, and that we could potentially have um you know experiments and research done in this facility that could perhaps elongate or help us along the way and speaking of (laughs) er and speaking of earth and earth uh ever changing earth um you can probably hear landscapers uh in our next door uh working right now so we should wrap it up are you guys building a a new biosphere three yes yes we're we're making sure that the lawn in the biosphere (laughs) two Uh, sorry, three sure. Biosphere three um, is 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 perfectly Neatly cut, trimmed, and, and yeah. you know it, it takes a lot of work to grow it. Um, so we're really proud. Of it. Really, I can't wait to come check out the facility. <laughs> it's um, so I want to ask you both. During our episode, um, we had three things on the board that that received something from the alarm. Yeah. We got the hubris and the skipping of education was sent to jail. John Allen was given the big slap and Ed Bass received the backhand. How are you feeling post the double duo expert extravaganza? <laughs> I love calling it an extravaganza. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like our response or our instinct was pretty close to, you know, Rebecca's choice i mean you know what they said was to blame was humans being at the center of the 
ecosystem. I, I feel like if everyone involved with the biosphere would have had had gotten there because of, uh, you know, uh, if they had had the, the very specific education needed to finish this experiment, then mm-hmm. perhaps they would have realized that, you know, maybe, maybe I, my point is that I think what we chose and what Rebecca chose might have been in the same ballpark. For sure. I think it goes right in with hubris because we're saying right. the hubris of like not having to have ed- education. Rebecca, they were saying that like just this idea that we're somehow at the center of it all and not like we think so highly of ourselves. And so that anything that we do, we'll be able to figure out. And it's again, going back to that, I just think like the best statement that they said was, yeah, it was doing well and it was going to literally eradicate us because we were the <laughs> problem in this environment. It's so so it's hard like, get rid of those humans. It's so hard for us to take ourselves out of the center uh, yeah. of right. the narrative. But uh, the earth was here long before we were. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, it's okay for us to keep what we had. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that we were able to speak to all of these uh, experts. I'm absolutely going to be planning a trip to Biosphere 2. <laughs> Let's take a field trip. We'll Me bring too. the podcast along. Oh, my God. How fun. Ooh, we should do a field trip episode. <laughs> right? Alarmist goes to Biosphere 2. And you know what? The um, a- a- Alarmy members can meet us there. You know? <laughs> yeah. We'll take the virtual. We'll take the app tour together. <laughs> Um, Okay, well, this has been really fun. And tune in next week, everyone, because we are going to be discussing the Spaghetti House Siege of 1975. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.